Hello, and welcome to Pod Rocket. Uh, with me today is Noah Hine. Hi, Noah. How's it going? Good. How are you, Kay? I'm doing well. Uh, Noah is the technical content editor at uh, QuickNode, um, and he's joining us today to talk about uh, Web3 and, and all that fun stuff. Um, also with us is Paul. Hi, Paul. Howdy. Paul is one of our engineers uh, here at LogRocket. So, um, yeah, thanks everyone for joining. And um, Paul, do you want to get into it? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kate. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Noah. Uh, we wanted to kind of take this podcast and talk more about the fundamentals of Web3 and blockchain, right? Because uh, it's a confusing topic for everybody that's already technical and deep into this stuff. So, um I feel like the best place to start would be this this question that I'm sure you get asked all the time. What's the deal of blockchain and Web3? Are they different? Are they the same thing? What's the TLDR on that? Sure. So that that's uh man, you're you're coming at me straight straight out the gate with with the good the good questions. Um so I would say the difference between blockchain and web three is that I think of blockchain as kind of being the infrastructure level, whereas web three is kind of like the entire ecosystem. And where you want to kind of draw the lines is where you start getting into those those hot Twitter takes and all the debates and everything. But uh, as far as a concrete answer, if you hear someone talking about Web3, I'm generally speaking of like any any part of the ecosystem, any blockchain, anything that is, is involving a blockchain or interfaces with it gets, gets the Web3 label slapped on it. So would it be fair to say we could take Bitcoin, Solana, Cardano, and throw that into the blockchain category and all the dApps we use, like Shiba Swap, Uniswap, all that stuff would be a Web3 category. Yeah, I, I would Yeah, I would definitely say all of those can be Web3. I would say all of those are Web3 because I kind of still, uh, I would specify that blockchain still fits within Web3, but it is like the infrastructure layer. So Web3 is like the general huge bubble that just encompasses everything, whereas like the kind of apps that you'd mentioned, I would specify those as dApps or decentralized applications. Gotcha. All right. Uh, that, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Um, kind of talking about it as a fundamental layer, and it's kind of like squares or rectangle, right? Or how does it go? You know, one of them's the other one, but the other one's not. Oh the other. yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's encompassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or we'll go with uh, um, the web. Web three is the rectangle, and and the infrastructure, the blockchain, is the squares. Right, right. We're, we're thinking about the same thing. Awesome. So, what? Where would you say you're focusing like a lot of your time? Is it on the application and user layer? Or are you really focused more on the fundamental blockchain? <laughs> Yeah, so it's an interesting question because I do quite quite a lot across the entire stack given my uh, role as a technical content editor at QuickNode. Um, QuickNode itself is on that infrastructure lo- layer. Um, you know, if this is uh, the Web3 is this big gold rush, we're, we're the picks and shovels of Web3. So if you don't want to host your own server, that's a, a very big proponent of why we're all like, saying, okay, this is a really uh, fundamental change in how we think about technology. Everyone's going to be running their own servers, and that's what a lot of people do. For example, on the Ethereum blockchain or on the Bitcoin blockchain, people will run their own nodes. And that's uh, you have to be technical to do that, and you have to kind of have like a sysadmin. Like if you are running a node, if I'm going to make an, like an analog, I'm going to say you're like a DevOps person. 
you're you're so what what would we say is a node just for anybody that might not be able to relate like what is what is this node that you're talking about that people need to run why do they need to run yeah sure so to answer that we kind of have to take a couple steps back actually which is uh should give us some good context here so a node is going to be a client that you're running on your computer um and this node uh, we'll talk to other nodes. And so this is why we call blockchain a peer-to-peer -peer network. Uh, each peer is a node. So you could also call it a node-to-node -node network, although you'd certainly get a couple of sideways glances for calling it that. Um, so everyone here has the ability to run an Ethereum node on their computer, and it is going to talk to any other Ethereum nodes that it can uh, talk with and whatever. To support the network support the blockchain. Yeah, right? and so all of these right. together create the blockchain ecosystem that we refer to as like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but any one individual person is a node operator. So someone that's running this node operator, if I was, like I was saying, like you would kind of be like the DevOps or SRE kind of equivalent uh, of the Web3 world. And so Quick Node allows you to kind of abstract that away. Just like a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm a front-end web developer, you don't necessarily worry so much about the deployment. Everyone talks amazingly about these companies like Vercel and Netlify because it's just like, I don't have to worry about that. I just am an application developer. I build the website and the rest takes care of itself. Quick note is kind of that uh, re replacement for, for those companies that I had just mentioned. So how does running a node that supports the Ethereum blockchain. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on board with you there. It's, it's creating this network that's running all this stuff. Now, let's say I want to develop it down. I want to develop something uh, that that looks at my personal transactions and tracks them. How does having this node help me do that as a developer? How can I? Yeah, I'm trying to make the analogy between like me writing a next app and just throwing it at yourself versus how can I draw a line to me writing this blockchain app for myself to track my transactions and how does running a node or quick note, I guess, in this context, help me there? Yeah, sure. So in the same sense that like, if you want to host a website or something that you're going to need to deploy it somewhere, in this case, it'll be a server. Um, what quick note is going to allow you to do is um, create this kind of app level. Uh, it gives you access to the blockchain. And so in the case that you're talking about, like, okay, I'm creating maybe like a dashboard and I want to plug in my wallet and I want to see all of my beautiful graphs and a bunch of dashboards of all the money that I've lost since I, I started buying crypto. And so if you were to do that, you don't need to run your own node. Um, it's not going to benefit you in any meaningful way. Um, if you're the kind of person that wants to run a node, there are kind of incentives that are involved in the network. And so running, it's, running your own node can kind of be seen as its own thing. Whereas if you want to develop an application and I just kind of plug in QuickNode, I can start asking QuickNode and say, hey, what kind of data am I looking for? I can start asking it, okay, if I have all the transactions that I'm looking for, I can ask my, my QuickNode URL for that. So every single um, dApp or really anything that is interfacing with the blockchain needs to have uh, some sort of connection to the blockchain, but they do not have to be the person running it. Just like you don't have to have a, a server rack in, in your living room if you want to deploy your applications and have an actual server running. You can offload that to AWS, for example. And that's the same thing that people are doing with QuickNode is running these nodes takes quite a lot of time and is like its own kind of specialty. Like I would, I, I really tell people uh, is that DevOps equivalent. Like they're kind of like the magicians in the background that you're just like, I'm not entirely sure what they do, but I know that they let me run my applications at the end of the day and make my life a lot easier. So running this node, it's almost like it's 
it's keeping track of all the blockchain data as it's happening and it's downloading it all so you have it ready to go and that's a lot of that's a lot of data right that's a i'm just thinking about the blockchain it's huge so does quick nodes sort of give you a way to um or running this node arbitrarily for yourself does it give you a way to scan through it quickly like what happens when you want to ask do you it, would it be on the developer to sort of like keep track of these events as they come in and maybe put them in a, a database or something or like if you're on the developer side how would you kind of approach that problem yeah sure and so there's actually a, a difference here that people can run so like i mentioned anyone can run a node but there are actual several different nodes um because not everyone has all of the memory to run a uh, what's called an archive node on their computer. And that's something that you're referring to. Like if I want everything since like Ethereum started from that Genesis block up until like five minutes ago, an archive node has all of that historical data and I can go and traverse that from front to back and see every single transaction and every single state that the blockchain has been in since its inception. Yeah, and that's an archive node. But there's also an alternative kind of lighter client called these full nodes that you can run. And that's only going to keep track of the state of, um, I want to say the last 128. I may be wrong on, on that exact number, but it's going to keep kind of like an up-to-date record. And it isn't going to hold all of that historical data. And so you can think of if you want all of that historical data, for example, like if I want to get all of the transactions that a user has sent uh, for their entire history, that's that's a lot you're going to need. And you don't need an archive node yourself, but you need access to one. Because if you just had the full node, you'd be like, hey, I want that block from like 5,000 blocks ago, and your node's going to kind of shrug and be like, ah, sorry, man, I don't have that. Whereas you don't need to cache that necessarily in a database, but you could. That's what you see a lot of, um, you hear a lot of talk about like write operations. People complain about gas fees being really expensive because to write to the blockchain, you have to pay these gas fees. But if you want to take these read operations, those are free. And so, like I said, that's like a lot of compute power that you need. So you may want to cache that if every single time your user has to wait, you know, 30 seconds for your processor to go through all of that historical data. Like it'll certainly make your app more performant, but it isn't necessary. Right. So it sounds like there's like a whole slew of levels that a developer can kind of approach getting into Web3 at, like, there's full nodes, there's archive nodes, depending how much history you want to have. There's variability in what is the workload of your app look like? What type of data do you want? Do you want to cache this in a database? Maybe you can just scan through the blockchain. There's, like, a lot of different ways. Um, but I guess that kind of gives a good starting point for things for people to Google, right? It's, like, uh, some different terms to start looking at. Um, so kind of stepping away from, I guess, the developer's point of view, if we're looking at Web3, a little more globally. Um, obviously, there's a lot of criticism about Web3, and a lot of it is very valid, of course. Like, there's a lot of questions about, is this, <clears throat> excuse me, is this more optimal? Why would it be more optimal? Um, if it's not more optimal, why would this still work in certain ways, in certain applications? Um, so do you think you could fill us in a little bit, like some of the criticisms you've seen that maybe you mull over in your head a little bit, and uh, how you how you process those? Yeah, sure. And I mean, that's actually why I got into the space originally was I had uh, like a big interest in the technology. And I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. I see it. It's something that I'm interested in. I'm learning tech. This is a new tech. I'm obviously, you know, most tinkerers or engineers are kind of interested in playing with new things. 
And as I started playing with it, I like was looking around in my Google searches. And I'm like, man, there isn't anything. Like I cannot find any resources. All I can see is that Shiba Coin is up 30%, and I've got a bunch of people on Twitter losing their absolute minds over it. And so there was like this huge amount of hype in the space, but I couldn't find this actual technical content that I was looking for. That's just like, yeah, this is what a blockchain does, and this is what it is, and it's just kind of bare and dry. That's that's what I was looking for. I wasn't looking for like this page turner novel of what everyone's speculating on. I just wanted the the core basics. And so for me, a lot of criticism, I think, uh, towards the space comes from that. And it's like a lot of uh, sensationalism. It's like, oh my goodness, all of this is here. I think there's a lot of uh, excitement because we see this as a technology that can disrupt um, these kind of incumbent players that we come to think of. Um, because the, you see in the news, like every single day, you know, like Facebook paying millions of dollars to not appear in front of Congress and, and all sorts of scandals. Apple is uh, installing data that's going to look on, on your phone for the name of, you know, like, oh, we're going to catch bad people that have like sensitive data from other people on their phone. All sorts of stuff of just like constant breaches of privacy and the kind of, I guess, mission goal and why everyone's so excited about that is a lot of people say that you own your data. I don't necessarily like to, to think about owning my data, although you, you certainly could make that argument. But to me, it's more important that I have access to it. That's that's the thing. So even if I'm using a centralized provider like QuickNode, like that kind of goes against the, uh, I guess, ethos of everyone should be running their own node. That's just, that's not going to happen. No, not everybody wants to run their own server. But the thing is, if I'm like deeply integrated in QuickNote and I've been using it every day and one day I just want to be like, I don't like QuickNote anymore. It's not the same as if I'd been using like an AWS server or anything like that, because all of my data is still publicly available to me. Uh, QuickNote isn't going to be able to turn around and sell all of that data because who's going to sell, who's going to buy data that you can quite literally query yourself. And, and so for me, that's what's exciting about the space. And I think a lot of the criticism comes from people getting too excited uh, about it because they're like, oh, yeah, this is the future and we're going to have everything. Everyone's going to be able to run their own, like run their own nodes. Everyone's going to own their own data. And this is our wonderful user utopia. But then people that are like, oh, well, that actually sounds interesting. They come into the space and then to send $10, they have to pay $10. And they're like, okay, well, that seems uh, like not very well. Like if I'm using Venmo or something like that, it cost me like two pennies and it happened in half a second. Whereas now I'm like in this weird pending state where I sent someone money and I'm waiting for the blockchain to like confirm this transaction. And that takes like five to 10 minutes. And it's just a a lot of, uh, it's a harsh reality is that like this technology is early, but people talk about it like it's not. Yeah, I think that from what I've been reading online, that's a big like reality it's very early it's nascent honestly like there's still a lot of discovery to happen uh, on all sorts of fronts and on different blockchains too i think that's another thing um that people should start googling and learning about uh from my perspective is you know there's solana and there's bitcoin they're like two separate ends of the the infrastructure spectrum right we have something that produces a block every 400 milliseconds So you have new data being shot out in the world, like less than a second. And then you have blockchain, as you said, Bitcoin, excuse me, it takes 10 minutes. So there's different applications, different user spaces to kind of explore. Um, And it's just the beginning for sure. Um, 
why don't we take a quick step into DAOs as well? So that's another mystery term, right? And there's been a lot of exciting developments with DAOs in 2021. I know there was some legislature official in Wyoming, right? Yeah. Where you can now make a DLLC. Uh, so could you fill us in on like, what is a DAO? And a real world example, maybe if there's one out there that you could talk about. Yeah, sure. So first of all, DAO is an acronym. It's a decentralized autonomous organization. And you can kind of think of this as like, I'll, I'll give you the, the uh, prophetic kind of example of like, this is an LLC that is software. So instead of me having this business and this business pays me, I just have smart contracts. That's a DAO. And whenever I do work for the DAO, it just streams me a real-time income. Like, okay, I started this thing and I'm getting paid like every second. This is like the the peak DAO thing is I didn't sign any contracts. I was just able to prove and like this decentralized council was like, yeah, Noah knows what he's talking about. He can start this project and the treasury just started giving me money and they know that I'm going to get the work done. What What they are now is... Uh, new is is a good word for it. Like, for example, I think what they're being used for right now is really a way to um, coordinate communities via their tokens is kind of what the uh, core value that they're being used for now because there's not a ton of legal structures. Like, unless you live in Wyoming, you don't really have the option to set up a, a DAO or an LLC. And there's already been a couple cases where like DAOs get sued, like the individual contributors to these DAOs get sued because it's really, as far as the court, at least in the US, looks at it, it's like, yeah, y'all are just a group of people doing stuff. And you know, that's that's great that y'all are doing stuff and you got this token or whatever, but that that doesn't really cut it. And so what DAOs are trying to do right now is kind of get these frameworks involved. And so I think the idea is that this DAO um, like instead of having a CEO has some like appointed leader. And for example, you could have a CEO be the leader for three years in a row, but then suddenly they start to lose trust of the community and they start acting out of place and they get voted out. So you kind of have this democratic corporate entity almost that allows everyone to not only partake of in this particular uh, organization, but also reap the benefits of it. For example, like no one that I know got paid to use Facebook as it came out. No one got like early adopters fees for Facebook, but um, ENS as the Ethereum naming service um, is one of the more popular DAOs currently. And last year, anyone that owned a .eth domain, you see it on Twitter all the time, somebody has their name and it's just .eth, that's ENS is enabling that to happen. And an ENS airdrop happened retroactively. So they said, all right, everyone that's in this community that has this and has been using this and has been giving us this product feedback, we're giving y'all this ENS token. And now ENS, instead of being this uh, just typical uh, centralized entity, is now a DAO. And they're holding these snapshot discussions where people that have this ENS token that they got from using the product, they're now able to turn around and decide where the organization is going to go. So it's uh, a way to really enable your users to capture the value that they created by using your system. And maybe just to help make that a little concrete, um, this is an organization that is a name service. So it's taking these big, long smart contract or, or address addresses on the blockchain and it's wrapping them to a human readable, uh, nice little name, kind of like our IPv4 
DNS lookups. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think of it in my head, like, oh, wow, like who is controlling that? Like who has the names? Like who, what are the, what's that weird big company, i.e. some big internet company that, and that this is what it is. We have a DAO. It is a coordinated way for people to come together and hold this token. Um, and I didn't know that it was it turned into DAO. That's, that's really neat. Yeah. And, and you can, you can see, like, if you go right now, you can, not only is it valuable to the people, because obviously if you have this token that now has monetary value because people uh, put a monetary value on being able to vote in these, uh, they're called snapshot proposals, where it's, you don't have to pay gas, they just the blockchain knows that you have this and then you can vote. And so that ability to vote allows people to be like, okay, that has value. And now since I have a vested interest in like making this company more money, I am now kind of aligned with them in making sure that the proposals are good proposals. You know, uh, you see all the time people make these changes to the platforms like Twitter, for example, you know, all the classic uh, API rug pulls of like, okay, yeah, there's the new Twitter API and it's awesome and it's shiny. And then it's like, yeah, actually, no, we don't, we don't like that. You're not running your own Twitter client. Uh, this this is like we're locking it down. That's not able to happen because in order to do that, you would need uh, to change the smart contracts in some way. And in order to change these smart contracts, it's in the code that says there needs to be a proposal with this amount of votes that pass. And so if you have a voting proposal that comes up to the blockchain and says, hey, y'all, I would like to revoke all of your tokens and, you know, just all of it goes to me and I'm going to go off to the Bahamas and enjoy my vacation. Obviously, that's not going to pass. So it's really tightly coupling uh, the com the users to the platforms and making sure that they're beneficially working with each other in a in a symbiotic manner instead of a parasitic manner. It's almost like shareholder votes when you have on the stock market, except it's open and transparent, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a great it's, analogy. It's setting setting codes set in the blockchain can't change that. And uh, circling back to uh, where you used just a minute ago, gas, right? Gas fees. Tell us all about gas fees, the joy of where we are now with gas fees, what they were meant for. Yeah, sure. Why are they so high? Yeah. So you can see, yeah. like, I, like I said, the, the technology is early, but it's gained a huge amount of momentum. Like if you look at any technology in the last 10 years, it was like if you're able to look at the whole like industry as a growth curve, I think I would struggle to find one that's gone as parabolic as Web3 has in the last couple of years. And so the technology hasn't quite caught up to all of the users. And so I have to take a step back and kind of tell you all like why gas needs to exist in the first place. Because that's, that's back to the Web3 criticisms. Everyone's like, why do I need to pay money to change my information? I'm, like if I'm changing my username for some website, why do I need to pay you know, upwards of like $100 at times to do that? That's ridiculous. And like I said, people are running these nodes on their computers. And so that's just CPU. CPU in the 21st century is equivalent to money. I could be spending that CPU power doing something else that would be making me money. And so to incentivize the network to run more nodes, because the more nodes there are, the harder it is to uh, censor the network or bring the network down in any meaningful way. Because if you're thinking about uh, redundant databases, you know, Ethereum is like number one uh, up there. You know, you don't have more redundant data than the blockchain since it's just replicated so many times. But so we see this as a good thing. We want this to be a highly available, redundant, 
globally distributed system. But in order to do that, people need to run nodes. And to run nodes, people need to get paid for it. And so that's, that's where gas comes in, is people are running uh, these nodes. And as a reward for running those nodes, they get a certain amount of uh, gas fees. And so anytime that uh, some block, uh, if you're thinking about like CRUD operations, if I'm reading something, I don't need to add anything to the blockchain. But if I need to update something or I need to create something, then, all right, somebody is going to have to run cycles on their computer to make that happen. And so they get rewarded with a portion of your gas fee. So you're essentially paying the network instead of paying a server, for example. Like a lot of people have like really high AWS bills or whatever for their server. You can kind of think as instead of one company, if I'm thinking like Twitter, subsidizing that server cost, you know, I doesn't, it doesn't cost me anything to use Twitter. It's completely free. And outside of, you know, my attention and time that I give it, uh, you know, that's, that's completely free. And Twitter is able to take my, my time and energy and convert that somehow into money that they use to pay their servers. So we're, instead of Twitter subsidizing those server costs, it's just distributed to everyone and all of the users that are using the network on a daily basis. And right now, uh, gas fees are really high because the technology that allows us to make all of these uh, transactions and processes have not caught up to the huge, you know, parabolic curve of just like widespread adoption that we've got in the last two years. So it's really a bandwidth problem. There's too few nodes for the amount of things that need to happen. So the premium on that CPU time for each validator, for each node to process that is it's prime. Um, Would that be fair somewhere? It's... I'm not going to say that there's too few nodes because it's not like all of the nodes are maxed out. It's um, This is kind of a design philosophy of Ethereum is that um, we're thinking of a blockchain. It's a linked list. Essentially, you're familiar if you did some DS and Algo course, you saw what a linked list was in, in your course at some point. And so it's this linked list and you can only fit so much data in each block. And so what we're working towards right now is not necessarily creating more blocks. For example, that's what Solana does, and it's kind of Solana's solution to the problem is, okay, well, all these blocks are getting filled up really fast. Let's make more blocks. That seems, you know, like, uh, uh, seems like an easy solution, whereas Ethereum has this uh, capped block size. So you're not paying necessarily for the node operator you're competing against other users for the block space and that block space is, is capped. So it's like, mm, if there's 20 people and only 10 spots on that in, on that particular block, how much is that block worth to you? And right now, you know, the gas fees on Ethereum are high because everyone values that block space quite heavily. And, right. and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, it's at a premium now just because of how, how intense it is to write to it and there's a limited amount of block space. Um, so that kind of makes me think then, you know, what's, I don't want to make a dab now on Ethereum. Who does, right? Because it's it, it's impossible uh, with, with the gas fees being so high for you to really like deploy and expect like a lot of adoption if you're doing like a layer one right on Ethereum. So what do you think is going to happen in 2022 from your perspective, working at Quick Note, seeing all this content coming in, like seeing what's going on in, in the world from this high point of view, what and what does it mean specifically for like web development and 
also also DevOps in in the background because that's the land of DevOps and blockchain has also been changing every single year. Yeah, as these protocols come. Yeah, up. absolutely, and you can you can start to see um, this uh, trend. I'll call it throughout 2022 is going to be uh, layer twos. So all the blockchains that we've been talking about are what are called layer one blockchains. So like Bitcoin is a layer one, Ethereum is a layer one, and Solana is a layer one. And what Ethereum is coming onto at this point in time for its kind of like ecosystem growth is we're getting these layer two chains. And layer two chains are attempting to kind of compact more transactions into these uh, blocks. So like I said, we're not necessarily paying for the, well, what we're indirectly paying the node operators for their services. What we're actually like directly bidding on is that block space. And so what layer two solutions are attempting to do is cryptographically off chain so that there's no gas fees involved is cryptographically kind of bundle a group of transactions together and then submit that as like a single transaction to the blockchain. So that um, this is called like a zero knowledge proof. And there's also a thing called an optimistic uh, rollup. So there's a couple different scaling solutions that are being, uh, you know, brought to the table. But this particular one that I'm talking about is really trying to bundle up all of these transactions. And that is kind of making your blocks more dense while still being the actual same amount of data. And so, for example... Uh, but it's all going to the same chain. Yeah. and But the thing about this is if I'm able to process off-chain 20 transactions and bundle them into one big one and then submit that to Ethereum, you still have all of the security that Ethereum gives you in being this highly redundant, highly censorship resistant, all of all of the buzzwords of like, this is secure and I can guarantee that this data is safe without having to pay for that one. So instead of there being, you know, like I mentioned, 20 slots, we essentially opened it up to be 40 slots, but still have the actual same amount of bits in each block from like the actual uh, technology not the technology's perspective, but like the actual underlying bare metal perspective. Nothing changed. It's still the same amount of size for every single block. And so everyone that's running the nodes doesn't have to uh, eat that cost. You see like a chains like Binance Smart Chain is another layer one solution. And they did the same thing of just like more blocks. And so to run a layer one blockchain like Binance Smart Chain or Solana, your computer has to be way, way, way stronger than it does to run Ethereum. And so as a result of that, there are less nodes. And that's why you see like criticism of these chains because they are more centralized because only people with a lot of money are able to run these chains because the, the actual requirements to run the node are so high. And so Ethereum's focus has very much been like keeping nodes as simple as possible to run so that we can have more of them and dealing with these harder problems on like, how do we stuff more transactions into these blocks without, you know, gas fees going through the roof? I remember looking at the recommended specs for a Solana validator. And, you know, I have a really good gaming PC that I don't use anymore. But when I used to game, I used it. And, I, and then it said the recommended RAM was 128 gigabytes. I can't, I don't have enough slots to like make that happen <laughs> on my computer, I believe. So uh, yeah, that you need a beefy, beefy computer to do that. Um, from from the little that I've read. So, what do you think? Yeah, what do you think this is going to mean for app app developers or like 
what is it going to mean for me trying to buy a latte with Ethereum? With Ethereum. So I, yeah. I think what you'll see is you'll start to see developers uh, will not build on layer one. Whenever I'm building my dApp, I'm not going to deploy it to Ethereum. I'm going to deploy it to a layer two chain, such as like Arbitrum or Optimism. And so these layer two chains, for example, like um, me personally, I use Optimism, or I'm not Optimism, Arbitrum for all of my personal use. And so for me, whenever I'm doing daily trades, it's still expensive in the sense of like compared to free, which is everywhere else, you know, uh, but my transactions cost me between five to six dollars on Arbitrum, whereas on Ethereum, I'm paying like a hundred to one hundred and twenty dollars. So you're an Arbitrum is a layer two chain um, and it uses uh, I didn't go into it, but uh, optimistic rollups is the technology. If anyone wants to look into that further, um, that's that's the kind of keyword that you're looking for. Um, and so you'll start to see all of these app developers and all of the users will be on these layer two chains. And you're starting to see uh, interoperability between all of these chains. So like, uh, ideally, I shouldn't care about any of that. And that's what I think you'll see in like, maybe like, I don't know how long out it is or how far out it is, but you know, like say 10 years, I'll just say some arbitrarily long time. Um, and in 10 years, I'm not going to care what chain I'm on. I'm not going to care that it's Arbitrum or it's Optimism because we'll have that user experience nailed down and we'll have all of the kind of connecting Lego pieces in place where I can just not think about it and I could just use the app. And that's kind of what I think a lot of Web2, I, I hate the term Web2 people because it puts a bunch of people in the box that have been just like building web applications for the last 10 years and don't necessarily care about all these things. And suddenly they're being called like legacy developers. I've heard that term. And, but they are like expecting that, you know, like cookies, for example, like imagine if there were five different specs for cookies, how hard would it be to like build on your web app and how hard would it be for like users to use your web app? It'd be much more difficult. And we're kind of like, for the ecosystem yeah. And, and so right now we're in that stage of like, okay, we're figuring out all of the primitives and okay, we got those figured out. Now we need to figure out how to kind of link them all together. And that that's what you'll see over the next couple of years, I think is it won't matter what chain or what layer two or layer three I'm on. I'll just end up using it. But for the time being, if you're a dApp developer, you're going to deploy your applications on a layer two chain because it's just much cheaper. This kind of reminds me of the first stock I ever bought, which, which is actually Heinz tomato ketchup uh, <laughs> in my life. It was, yeah, it was the first stock. And I paid $14 to make that trade. But now you just trade for free because of the whole like, like warehousing of shares and they figured out a new technology, right? To go and talk to let people trade for free. So, um, Hopefully, like what we believe will happen to this to this space, and we'll continue to move in that direction of finding more efficient ways to get the same end goal done for for the user. Because as a user, we don't care about the fact that they're warehousing shares. You just want to trade it, and you want to trade. For, for yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's all about at the end of the day the user experience, and I think the ideal goal that I think a lot of Web three developers are going towards is the same experience that we get of just like seamless uh, user experiences where I don't have to think about doing things. I just do it and it works, but without a way where you're so easily exploited for the data that you're generating while using the platforms that you're on. Right. So I guess to wrap this up, then what are, what are you going to work on through 2022? 
like what are going to be your uh, projects that you're going to working on or things that you have your eye on other projects maybe that you're not working on yourself um, that are going to help the space yeah, so I think a really interesting problem that I'll, I'll probably look into more. So I spend a lot of my time on that kind of application level, just showing people how to build the products. Um, I think what we'll see is these decentralized storage and decentralized identity solutions uh, that will start becoming more prevalent. Um, and so, for example, if we're thinking about uh, these blockchains as being uh, decentralized compute, Obviously, we need decentralized storage as well. If we're going to have all of this data, we need places to put it. And so that's what I think you'll see in 2022 is a lot of these companies that are doing this are starting to get better and better user experiences and starting to be more and more replicable and cheap. And that way, whenever you're hosting all of these, you can know like, okay, this isn't just in one person's. Uh, it's not just an Amazon. It's not just in Google's you know, server. I have this available across the entire network. I think you'll see a lot of interesting things come up around that. And the other thing that I mentioned is the um, identity solutions. Right now, there's uh, you can create kind of like arbitrarily many uh, addresses from your one private key, and you'll probably start to see that because people don't want to be uh, kind of hinged on just the one address. Like if you're thinking about uh, in your day-to-day web world, web surfing, your email is kind of like your central point of like identity where if like I have your email, your email is attached to like every single service that you're using. And that's not good for users at the end of the day. It is like a highly concentrated source of like all of this stuff points to this one guy or girl or they, and at that point, like it doesn't matter. And it's just, I have their email and if I get access to their email, God forbid, you know, that's just an entire disaster after that. Whereas I think you'll see for these uh, decentralized solutions where people will, you won't be able to pinpoint, okay, hey, Noah used SushiSwap and he also used Uniswap, but he used a different one. So it's not so easy for corporations to kind of aggregate all of your data and and sell it to uh, typically advertisers, I I think you'll see in, in the near future. Cool. Yeah, thank thank you. Yeah, I think a lot of people are curious about what's next on the future, like right right away. And the identity thing, I've seen that floating around, but it's going to be interesting to see that actually come into a usable state where you can have a decentralized like Auth0 or something on the blockchain. That would be really cool. And I, and I have seen other people talk about how, you know, that would be the first, one of the first like awesome real world attainable like pieces of fruit that we could pick and put on that blockchain. Um, so it's cool to hear another confirmation about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. Yeah, I I think I've kind of asked you know, everything I want to ask, Kate, unless you had other things you wanted to pick his brain about. <laughs> no. Um, if there's anything, no, if there's anything that you wanted to plug or have our listeners go look at, um, we want to give that, that option uh, as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm at InHindDev and I work at QuickNode. That's just at QuickNode or QuickNode.com. Um, and I think that's everything. I write uh, a lot of guides for QuickNode. So if you're interested in learning about all of the technologies I've been talking about, go to QuickNode.com slash guides. You know, that's that's me and the rest of the content team over at QuickNode trying to give y'all that kind of education that I didn't have when I was entering the space is just, we're not here to tell you about everything that's going up. I'm not about prices go up. I'm about showing the technology that gets built. And I hope other people can uh, get onboarded easier than, than I was. 
Awesome. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. And um, yeah, this was actually a listener topic sent to us uh, from a listener. They wanted to learn more about Web3. So um, to our listeners, uh, if you want a topic, um, especially in this space, let us know and we'll um, get an episode together. Thanks so much, Noah. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Log Rocket. <laughs>